Hello everyone, how are you doing today? My name is Charlie. Welcome to this episode of Project Shadow. You might know me better as sci-fi fantasy writer C.E. Dorset, especially if you're reading my new book, Crucify My Love, which is available on Amazon Kindle paperback and as a podcast. Just search for Mask of the Gods wherever you're listening to this, and it should be there. So hi. Hey. It feels weird being alone today because I had two wonderful episodes with my husband on them. I hope you enjoyed our reviews. But today... We're getting back to brass tacks and talking about the wonderful, creepy, and dark, devilish world of the chilling adventures of Sabrina. And some of the interesting things that they did in crafting that world so it doesn't pass over into an over-the-top cliche or a moralistic fable. But before we get into that... If you haven't already, and the app that you're listening to me on allows you to rate this podcast, please do so. It helps out ever so much. It tells the algorithm to share the podcast with more people, and that would just make me happy. Because the more people that listen to the podcast, the bigger the community, the bigger the community, the more chance we have for interaction. And after all, isn't that what this is all about? In the end, at least for me, it is. So while I have made it very clear that Good Omens is probably my favorite thing that's come out in a very long time, I thought I'd give a little bit of time for people to watch it and make sure that they're familiar with the show before we talk about some of the stuff in that. So look forward to that episode coming. But Chilling Adventures of Sabrina season one and two have been out for a while. And, you know, I've kind of heaped praise on this show. And today, I wanted to go into the thing that makes it, oh, so wonderful. And the thing that could have really brought the whole thing down. See, the most interesting part of The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina is that you have to craft a world in which good is bad, bad is good, and the devil is the hero... By making the family a pack of devil-worshipping witches, which I have to say is a wonderful cliche in and of itself, without making any of it feel cliche, making it feel fresh, making it feel new, making it feel subversive, while at the same time not giving in to a lot of the tropes that could fall in here. We don't really have a lot of models to see how that can work and work well. Well, outside of metal music, which often uses the imagery and iconography of the devil to get across other messages, such as bands like Ghosts, Black Sabbath, Merciful Fate, and, well, I could be here forever if I listed bands that use devil imagery. Let's just say a lot of them. But the thing about Sabrina is it walks this fun line between its satanic setting. And it's cute, almost kitschy setting. 
and world and story. And it finds a way to do this very adeptly. How? One, by playing off tropes that you're already familiar with. Instead of having all of our villains be dark and evil and having to remember to say the opposite of everything, which can be a problem that a lot of shows do fall into when they try to do this thing. Only certain words are changed. So basically, the family, the Spellmans, who we spend most of our time with, are written in a way that you would recognize as a typical evangelical family. Except, any time you would expect to hear the word Jesus or God, the word Satan or Devil is inserted. And that's basically the story put on its head. You hear them talk about the false god, you hear them talk about their beliefs. But all of that is kept intentionally vague. And that vagary is the strength of the show. What are the Dark Commandments? What are they expected to do? Because you expect everything to be an inversion of the culture that you have experienced most of your life, because whether or not you are a practicing Christian, we have grown up in the milieu of the, you know, Protestant Reformation. From saying, bless you when somebody sneezes, to the ubiquity of phrases like, thank God, or, you know, what have you. These are phrases that are used by people whether or not they believe in the actual deities being expressed. They are common expressions in our culture. So by throwing everything backwards and getting the Hail Satans and all of the other dark references in there, it's able to fit in very easily into the milieu that we expect while being subversive of those expectations, because instead of praise Jesus, it's praise Satan. And those flow very well because they have the same number of syllables. If they had chosen to say praise Beelzebub, it would suddenly stick out. The show also utilizes tropes from common understood Christian practice to subvert as well, such as the dark baptism in season one. Baptism, whether or not a person has actually gone through the ritual, most people know what it entails. You go out to a river or to some body of water and get dunked, at least in an American idiom. So these are phrases that we have access to. They have a cultural meaning to us, and they didn't come up with new phrases that we would have to learn. When they start talking about Sabrina's dark baptism, we get a sense of what that means. We also see that since this comes later in her life, and you see some of the other connotations in there, if you're from a more Catholic milieu, then it starts to seem more like a First Communion or a baptism or confirmation. And of course, because they also start using words like Dark Communion and things of that nature, we have at least a basic foothold to grasp what is being talked about as we are learning the exact details that are in there. The vagaries about the devil and what the devil wants are some of the most powerful things that this entire story uses to throw all of our expectations on their head. By 
expanding our story, our setting out from the traditional story that we know of God, the devil, you know, Adam and Eve, and going into the more Hebraic lore of Lilith and adding her actually into the series as a character, we have the ability to see the demonic side of things and see it through the eyes of a character who, over course of season one and two, becomes increasingly sympathetic as her actions become more desperate. I suppose I should have said spoiler warning, but I kind of sort of did. I will probably be spoiling various elements of the series from now on if you haven't seen it yet, so fair warning. Um, <laughs> In the character of Madame Satan, Lilith, whatever you want to call her, she becomes a proxy for us to understand the Dark World. We have her and Auntie Z being our two main ways of seeing in, mainly because we don't spend much time with Father Faustus at all. We know who he is. We know that he has very rigid ideas of what makes a person properly a member of the Church of Night, but we see this primarily through the other character's eyes. And in seeing the, de the devotion, the almost blind devotion that Zelda has, and well, the weaker devotion of the other auntie and other members of the family. We come to see what's going on less as a cult, where it could have easily gone, into, you know, those people that go to church on Sunday and some members of the family are really into it and others just show up because, you know, they're expected to. It's what the family does. Again, putting us in this very easy-to-understand easy to comprehend milieu. I keep using that word. All of the circumstances around here are so common day that the only real surprising thing is when we see the statue, it's not Jesus or Mary with the children. It's a uh, goat headed Baphomet with children. This is surprising. But the main thing that they pull out in here is the topic of free will. And that is how the show builds everything around this dark concept while not having to go into an utterly dark place. In fact, it's the very notion of free will that the entire series hinges on, whether it be the human characters such as Theo and their relationship with their own body and understanding of who they are, to even the football players and their, well, transphobic, homophobic, and sexist views of the world. We see them struggling through this angle of free will. None of it is predetermined. And by focusing on free will so sharply in the lives of all of our characters, with one notable exception, the world frames itself perfectly. I said one, I should have said two. So the two characters in question are, of course, Mrs. Wardwell, or Madam Satan, and Ra Roz, Rosalind Walker. These two characters are the only two characters that are not able to act exclusively out of their own free will. Roz's family has been cursed by the witches to lose their sight as they come into the, their powers. As the cunning grows stronger, their ability to see grows weaker, and... Mrs. Wardwell, 
Ms. Wardwell, has a problem in that she literally sold her soul to the devil. She made a deal back at the beginning with the Dark Lord to do his bidding, and thus has to keep that oath. So no matter how much these two characters want to exercise their free will, or how hard they try to exercise their free will, they are, well, thwarted because of exterior forces acting upon them. And both are eventually aided by the free will of others who dare to risk everything to aid them. And their entire storylines are based on these characters finding a way to actually achieve the freedom that the Church of Night professes to proclaim. See, by making it an argument over free will versus control, they're able then to show the basic problem with that premise. At one's dark baptism, the Dark Lord extracts an oath. The Dark Lord can come to you at any point in your life and extract one favor. You must do whatever the Dark Lord demands of you. This is the price you pay for the powers that are granted to you. Hmm. Well, that is interesting now, isn't it? That is not free will. That is actually the opposite of everything that the Church of Night professes to stand for. The blind obedience that is required to basically give in to such a mafia-style promise of, okay, well, I'll subvert my own free will in order to do whatever the Dark Lord asks of me. That doesn't actually accord with being able to do whatever you want. You see this also in the wedding ritual where the bride-to-be waits up all night in case the Dark Lord himself chooses to exercise a form of prima nocta and actually sleep with them prior to the wedding. Because the Dark Lord has the right to claim each bride the night before their wedding. Whether or not the bride consents or not, consent is not required if the Dark Lord wills it. And this actually gives the show its wonderful sense of dualism. You actually have two competing ideas of control. While we don't and haven't yet explained much about what the deity in this world actually wants from people, in fact, the closest we've come to that is seeing the angelic witch hunters that pose a threat to Sabrina in Season 2. We don't know exactly whether or not they are acting on some kind of a divine will or not, or whether they have adopted these beliefs on their own and are acting of their own accord. On the other hand, we very clearly see the Dark Lord appearing to people and forcing their action. Now, one of the more interesting things about this is the two kinds of control that we see enacted here. On the, if you will, side of light, we see a very militaristic series of controls. The Dark Lord's people are being threatened not by followers 
of the false god, if you will, to use the nomenclature from the show, but by angels who are here for the sake of destroying anyone who has had contact with darkness. They see themselves as a paramilitary group with the sole purpose of eradicating all dissent. This is a dark and dangerous path, but it is a very militaristic and right-wing form of totalitarianism, whereas on the other side we see a more left-wing view of totalitarianism. Where yes, freedom, all of that, do what thou wilt, yes, 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 but when I, through my cult of personality, require something of you, you wouldn't want me to take away what I want, what I gave you, because you refuse to give me what I want. Now, when I say left-wing, what I mean there is it has the veneer of liberty, it has the veneer of freedom, but, as with most totalitarian regimes, that veneer is hollow and empty. Because at any point in time, the will of the Dark Lord may be extended upon you, and you will be forced to act. By setting up this dichotomy where you essentially have two false gods claiming to have absolute control over their followers, while at least on the one side, because again, it's the only side we've really got to spend any time with, they believe that they are acting out of a sense of freedom and self-control. Neither side is actually seeking that. And this is where the end of season two poses one of the biggest threats to the world building that they've done in the series so far. With Satan being trapped and Madam Satan taking the throne, no one knows what the future holds. What will happen with the Church of Night? What will happen with Sabrina? What will happen with them going forward? Well, apart from Zelda becoming the head of the Church of Night, apparently, at least in their local coven, and Madam Satan ruling Hell, and Sabrina deciding that they are going to go and free young Scratch from the pit, well, there's not much more that we know. But we can infer some things here. Remember, it was a free sacrifice that caused Scratch to take in the devil to help trap him so they would stop the apocalypse. His free will is at odds with itself, and that poses one of the more interesting questions for this show to tackle. The other element that I have to mention very briefly before this ends is all of this titanic struggle over the concept of free will and what it actually means and what it entails, what does liberty actually mean, is played out over a very self-conscious B-movie experience. The first thing that we see in the series is Sabrina and her boyfriend at the time going to see a movie. A B-movie. A B-movie horror film. We then see most of our time being spent hanging out at a uh, bookshop and malt shop owned by somebody who has a bit of B-movie monster celebrity, who also uh, 
Dr. Cerberus, who turns out to be an incubus. By being self-conscious and self-referential in allowing us to see this B-movie aspect overtly, it helps us to expect, accept it when the zombies arise, when the demons arise, when the witches are doing their witchy works. It's a beautiful and brilliant bit of world building, and it's something that I think they really should be applauded for. There are a lot of ways that they could have gone with this series, from making it more Adam's Family-esque, where everything's just a little bit odd, a little bit creepy and kooky, mysterious and ooky. Or they could have gone the way a lot of these shows typically go, where everything is an inversion of what you would expect, such as the monsters, or other shows that have followed. Instead, they have chosen to make an argument that the dark side is based on this idea of radical free will, and then to expose that as a lie. It would be interesting to see where the show goes from here, but this is such an important and beautiful thing to have played out in the series so far. I can't wait to see what they do with part three. And I hope you can't either. On that note, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you haven't already, please take a moment to rate this episode in whatever app that you're listening to me on. It really does help out a lot. If you have a dollar you can throw my way down in the show notes, you'll see a link both to the Patreon and to the community support page. For as little as $1 a month, you can join the project and help me to do everything that I do. Today is, I believe, the last day that my book, Fate's Harrow, is free on um, Amazon as of tomorrow, as of the recording of this, the book will be, um, off of Kindle Unlimited and I will be giving it away for free elsewhere. If you haven't picked up your free copy already, please do so. It will be there for you forever. Um, it, I will find other ways to put the book out. And I am currently thinking of doing a complete rewrite re of it. I'm just wanting to make my work more readily accessible as I focus more on podcasting, making the stories easier for you all to read, and everything else. So thank you to everybody who does already contribute. That really does help me out a lot. It helps me do everything that I do. If you don't have the money to join right now, that's fine. I completely understand that. But if you know somebody you think would enjoy this podcast, please, 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 please share it with them. That helps out a lot as well. If you want to get in touch with me, you can either use the voice message link in the show notes to send me a voice message or hit me up on Instagram or Twitter. I'm C. Dorset on both. I would love to know what you think so that I can be discussing the things that you're most interested in. You can find links to everything that I do over at projectshadow.com. Until next time, don't forget. Have the fun. Bye.